Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. This is an amazing passage, and there's a lot of verses in here that you've probably heard about before, even if you've never read the book of Isaiah. I mean, there's, uh, oh, that you'd rend the heavens and come down, which is a famous prayer. Uh, that passage that Paul quote, creates, or quotes in the New Testament about no eye has seen nor ear has heard all that God has prepared for those who love him. That comes straight out of this chapter. Uh, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. I mean, who, there's no believers, I don't think, that haven't heard that verse multiple times. That comes right out of this chapter. Uh, about we are the you are the we are the clay you are the potter that comes out of here. I mean, there's just so many things in 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 the book of Isaiah that uh, we've that we've read about and heard heard about, but we may not know where they're from. Well, I'm excited to teach this passage. I have prayed this prayer, uh, verse one. I mean, actually, when I sit down when I preach on a Sunday morning, I, I don't think there's hardly any Sunday mornings that I don't sit up here in this front chair before I get up here to speak and pray verse 1 of Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Because I want God to show up and to be in our meeting and our preaching. And so this is, this is, a, this is a, an exciting passage, a deep passage, a powerful passage uh, to get to share on. I believe our greatest need going into this new year is an awareness that God is the answer to the deepest longings of our heart and the answer to all our needs. Our greatest need is to look to Him with complete dependence for all of our needs and with complete confidence that He will meet those needs. The thing that I love about this chapter is that when Isaiah sees the great needs around him. He knows where to go. He lifts up his heart to the Lord and says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He goes to God. He knows the entire answer to all that he and his people are suffering is God coming down. He knows the entire answer to the great spiritual needs of the people is for God to come down. When I st- began setting this chapter, I recalled a book I'd read years ago by Andrew Murray called Waiting on God. And I opened it up, and sure enough, right in the introduction, he refers to Isaiah 64. And he says this, My conviction and desire is to direct the attention of all God's people to the one great remedy for all our needs. And he says that the one great remedy for all our needs is waiting on God. Waiting on God is the remedy because God himself is the remedy for all of our needs. He says it is the answer to every complaint of weakness and failure. Waiting on God is asking God to act for you. It is expecting God to act. It is feeling your helplessness, your great need, and then placing all of your hopes in God to intervene in your life situation and save you. It is looking to Him. It is calling upon Him, waiting for Him 
Verse 4, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. So this passage teaches so clearly, so powerfully that God responds to those who wait for him, to those who turn their attention, their focus, their eyes, and put all of their trust, all of their hopes on him. God responds to those who wait for him. You can trust God because God is the source. God is the source. God himself is the source for all that your heart needs and everything else too. He gives peace and joy and the Holy Spirit to those who ask. In 2 Chronicles 29, David said, Everything comes from you, O Lord. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hand are strength and power. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. In God, we have the resources to live life. The resources to get through each day with the strength with the joy, with the love that we need. Each moment we, we receive from God all that we need as we wait upon God. Second Corinthians 9, 8, I know it's in the context of giving, but it's, it's an amazing statement that applies here too. It says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, Having all you need, you will abound in every good work. I mean, that is the complete sufficiency that we have in our God. If we will learn to see that and to open our eyes to that and put our hopes in him moment by moment, trusting in him for the resources that we need to live life. Do you need something this morning? Do you need supplies? You know, Paul said, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Do you need a clear understanding into all that Jesus Christ is for you and could be for you? Do you need strength to get up with your kids at night or love for that person who said, made that comment that made you feel so small and hurt you so deeply? Do you need, do you want to be filled up to all the fullness of God? Do you want to walk in paths of righteousness? Do you need forgiveness for sins? Do you need redemption for something that you've done that you regret so much that caused so much pain? Do you need some painful event in your life to be redeemed and turned around for good? Do you need help in any way? The answer to all this is God. And when you understand that all you ever needed or wanted comes from God, and that he acts on behalf of those who wait for him, then you will pray like Isaiah. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Of course, we know that God is already here. God is here now ever-present. He is never far away. He fills the heavens and the earth. But this prayer is an expression. It's, it communicates the idea that we are asking for that we may experience that nearness, that we may know and see the presence of God. It is saying, I don't want to know you as a God way up in the sky, hiding behind this great cosmic curtain. 
It is saying, I want you to tear that curtain in two and be here in my life and enter into my life circumstances. And God responds to that kind of desire, that kind of prayer, that kind of passion. I believe if you belong to God, if you have come to God through Jesus Christ, if you are born of again, born of God, born of the Spirit, I believe that deep down in your heart, there exists this desire. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This prayer expresses the cry of your heart. Let it come forth. Let that desire uh, be born. Let it flourish. Let it bear fruit. Let it come forth out of your heart and out of your lips. The cry of your heart is for God's presence and power. And this is a prayer of intense desire. As you, as you read this, you can just sense that Isaiah's heart is welling up with emotion for God to break onto the scene. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The most important word in this prayer is the word, Oh, oh that you would rend the heavens and come down. Because that word, oh, expresses Something very important to God from your heart. It expresses desire. It expresses passion. It expresses longing. A guy whose uh, messages I appreciate named Stephen Cole uh, titled a sermon on this chapter, The Man Who Cried for God to Come Down. And that statement could be made about you. You could be the man who cried for God to come down. You could be the woman the young person who cried for God to come down. Really, indeed, I believe it should be the expression of all of our hearts. When we see who God is, when we see him in his majesty, in his glory, in his beauty, in his loveliness, there is really only one reasonable response to God. It is, come. It is not just, even though I like the song that we sing, God, you are welcome here. No, it is rend the heavens and come. It is open up the doors and come in. I don't yell very much during the sermon, but I'm getting close to it. Josh would be proud of me. If you have tasted of the presence of God, you will want God to fill every part of your life. You will say, rend the heavens and come down upon the work of my hands, my business, my work. Rend the heavens and come down in my home and on my family and on my children. Rend the heavens and come down to my heart and my soul. Holy Spirit, anoint me, fall on me, fill me to overflowing. Into this gigantic problem that I am facing, rend the heavens and come down. Into this matter I am struggling with that I am fearful about. O Lord, rend the heavens and come. Isaiah, in the context of of this chapter, he saw the desperate future of Israel. He saw their sad spiritual condition, their coming captivity in Babylon. And seeing that the nation was in crisis and facing crisis, it stirred his heart to cry for God to come down. What do you do in a crisis? What do you do in a desperate time? What do you do when you see needs in your family? 
What do you do when you see needs in your own life? What do you do when you see needs in the church? What do you do when you see needs in God's people? In his message that I referred to by Stephen Cole, he said, I believe the main method God use, or Christ uses to build his church is godly men who devote themselves to this prayer for God to come down. So what does real life church need in 2015? We need God to rend the heavens and come down. What does Reed Strand need in 2015? What does Gary Park need in 2015? What do you need in 2015? We need God. We need the Lord, the sufficiency of God for everything. And it's available to us. He just asks that we come to him with with passion and desire and let him know that's what we want. God, we want you. We want you to rend the heavens and come down. Stephen Cole went on to say, Revival praying begins... When some of God's people feel a lack of his working in our day. And I would say that really all prayer begins when you feel a lack. When you want something. Prayer is born out of desire. Prayer is born out of, out of a sense of need. That you're, 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 there's something you want that you are keenly aware that you need. If you find yourself spiritually dissatisfied, spiritually hungry, or maybe even spiritually frustrated, let this move you to this kind of desperate prayer. God responds to this kind of prayer. Prayer is sometimes even motivated by devastating circumstances, as it is here in this chapter. You know, we pray least when all is well. We pray most when we sense the greatest needs in our lives and among those whom we love. In Israel's case, it was destruction that, that caused them to pray this way. Verse 10, your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our fathers praised you, has been burned with fire. And all that we treasured lies in ruins. And sometimes, sometimes it takes seeing things that you treasured lying in ruins before you pray with this kind of earnestness and this kind of desire. But when you see things in your life or family or surrounding you that in a sense are lying in ruins or, or seem to be heading in that direction, use that as a motivation to pray and to call upon Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, the all-sufficient God for all that we need. Israel was a nation in need of revival. Isaiah saw that, and he cried out. The church today is in need of, of great revival. In a sense, not to be too negative, but in a sense, the church of Jesus Christ today lies in ruins. Not total ruins, but there is just... Um, there is such a sad, low state of spirituality in the church of Jesus Christ today. The church is in great need of revival. When I read in the New Testament 
how Paul describes salvation as people turning away from their idols to serve the living God. I sense, I see, I feel we need those kind of conversions in the church today. We need that kind of salvation. People turning from idols to serve the living God. There is such a shallow concept of salvation in the church today. So we need this kind of fervent, earnest prayer for God to come down. Certainly in the church, also in our personal lives. I think this chapter has every kind of application to our own lives and hearts and families, but it also has application to the church. We need to cry out. This next year, we need to cry out for God to come down here in the USA, here in Ankeny. The reality is, if we are content with our low spiritual condition or with the worldliness that is in the church or with apathy that is in the church, then we won't pray for revival. Okay, If we're, if we're content with the low state of things or with the worldliness in the church, we won't pray for re- revival. You know, the, La- the Laodiceans had this attitude. We, we are rich. We have requ- acquired wealth. We do not need a thing. We're fine. If you have no need, if you are content with the way things are, then there is no prayer like this. This prayer really comes out of a sense of what A.W. Tozier called a holy dissatisfaction. This was the situation in Isaiah's day. Josh and I were having coffee a week ago Friday. We didn't meet uh, this last Friday, but at noon we usually meet on, on Friday and we talk about church and talk about what we're teaching on and various needs of people and so forth. And Josh asked me what, I, what, what my thoughts were for the church for this next year, what I thought our needs were for the church. And I said, Isaiah 64, verse 1, for God to come down. We need this. We need earnestly this kind of prayer today. Verse 7, no one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. Part of the great sin of the people of Isaiah's day was apathy. No one calls on your name or lays hold of you or strives to lay hold of you. They had no interest, no serious interest in God. They were indifferent. No one really cared about the things of the Lord. There was no passion to know and experience the fullness of God. They, had, they failed to arouse themselves spiritually. They failed to arouse themselves to lay hold of God. And yet... Isaiah says, God responds to this kind of prayer, to those who wait for God, those who look to God with this sort of earnestness. God responds to passion and desire for him. Secondly, God responds to faith that desires for God to do something tangible. And I pray to God that I got this point right. I think I do. But I pray to God that I do because I think it's so definite here and I think we really miss something if we don't see this. Verse 1 goes on to say, After, O Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down, it says, 
It goes on to say, oh, that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. What I see in that, there's a desire for something tangible, okay? There's a desire, a passion to get an answer, to see something happen. We want something real to happen as in response to our prayers. And I think when we pray without expecting, maybe without even wanting a real answer to our prayers, it becomes something less than prayer. Real prayer wants an act, and, and ask for and expects to receive a tangible answer. We want something real to happen in response to our prayers. I want to see a mountain tremble as a result of this prayer. I want to see a fire start. I want to see twigs start to blaze. I want to see water start to boil in response to my prayer. And I think we need to pray that way. You know, when, when I have a problem in my business or, or in the church or something that really concerns me, uh, many times I'm in my office and I will, I, will, I will just raise my hands to God and say very loudly, God, save me in this situation. But I will often also add, I want to see a real answer here in regard to this matter. I know God answers in many ways. I know that sometimes we do not see his answers immediately or they do not come as we anticipate. But there is still something right about wanting to see a tangible, real answer to our prayers. You know, and one of the passages that, that we usually use to show that sometimes we don't get a tangible answer is, is from uh, Paul's prayer about the thorn in the flesh. But the thing I love about that prayer is, number one, he knew he had a problem. He knew where to go with it. He knew to go to the Lord. He knew exactly how many times he prayed for it to be removed, because he counted them. One, two, three times I've asked the Lord for this to happen. He knew three times that it hadn't happened the way that he expected it to, because he was expecting a tangible answer. And yet, when Christ told him that his power would be manifested in his weakness. He knew that he had gotten an answer, that, his an- that that was his answer from Jesus Christ. You know, a couple of uh, years ago, I, I suffered with a pretty, pretty bad continual headache for about nine months. And I remember at some point, I felt, I felt there was some kind of breakthrough when I went to God and I said, God, I want a real healing. I want a healing my body knows about. And I'm not saying that's a formula for someone to pray to, to be healed. But there is something, there's, there, there's something in our prayer. We have to reach a point in our prayers where we really expect and want and cry out to God and wait upon God for a real answer. And that's the kind of prayer that Isaiah prayed here in Isaiah 64. And some might say, well, I'm not sure I should pray that way or with that expectation. I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't I just let God do whatever he wants? Well, of course, yes, God will do what he wants. I mean, his will will be done. But also, no, because it is a problem to not pray this way. That was the whole problem 
that I are one a part of the problem of the sinfulness of these people. No one calls on your name. No one strives to lay hold of you. So we are we are to strive to lay hold of God for His works in our life and in our day. Now the next thing I want to say I think is very important. Um, maybe it isn't, but I think it is. Uh, this is not a prayer of what I would call desperate hopelessness. You know, there is there 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 is a there's been kind of a, a move in in some circles of Christianity where you know we talk about how desperate we are for Jesus, and I like that because we are desperate for Jesus. But I also think you know Jesus said, "He who comes to me and believes me will never thirst or hunger again." I mean, there's there's, there's this little bit of this tension here that I think we have to be careful about. But I don't think that Isaiah is is saying, oh, that you would come down, but I know you won't. Okay? And I think sometimes people pray that way. They pray, oh, Lord, I wish wish you would take care of this. Really pretty sure you won't and don't really expect you to. But, oh, I wish this would happen. I owe you wish that you would do this. That is not this kind of prayer. We know that because of what Isaiah goes on to say. He says, Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, a God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. And I love the rest of that verse too. You come gladly to the help of those who gladly do right. You come to the help of... I, I guess I misquoted that a bit. But you, co- you come to the help of those who gladly do right. And I think you could add that you, you do gladly come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. I mean, if, if you want to more than memorize a verse, I, don't, I really don't want to suggest memorizing a verse, but if you want to tattoo a verse on your heart, verse 4 would be it. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come gladly to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. Isaiah is saying, our God is real. He is not like the God, gods of the heathen nations. He can be trusted to act for those who wait He will come through for those who wait for him. Isaiah 49 verse 3 in one version says, No one who waits for my help will be disappointed. No one who waits for my help will be disappointed. Now, waiting on God does sometimes involve waiting. Waiting itself is an act of faith. It is a willingness to trust God when others have given up. Those who wait know it is better to have something happen in God's time than in their own time. No matter how how long you have been praying for something, no matter how it may appear that your prayer, prayer has gone unanswered, if you wait on God, He will act on your behalf. How do I know that? Because it says it right here. And you can put all of your faith in that. 
If you are waiting on God, if you are sincerely from in your heart looking to God, hoping in Him to do something that you need, if you keep waiting and looking to God, He will act on your behalf. All right, and then third, there's one more ingredient that is essential if we want God to respond respond to our cries. God answers a people who honestly acknowledge their own sins and their faults and come in humble, repentant confession to him. Verse 5, when we continued to sin against your ways, you were angry. How then can we be saved? Verse 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. The people were saying, we understand why we've been suffering these things. We understand why we and our fathers have been suffering through the years. We've sinned continually and repeatedly against the Lord and against the ways of the Lord. We have been living against God. We've been living against the ways of the Lord. You know, and that's the total opposite of looking at your sin and saying, well, nobody's perfect. Isaiah saw the severity of sin. He saw sin as a horrible offense against, against the holy and loving God. He saw that sin provoked God to anger, how sin created a, a barrier with God. This prayer is spoken by Isaiah, but it's typically seen or understood as a, as a, as a prayer or expressing the prayer of a remnant of the Jews, a godly remnant, a small number who acknowledge they have done wrong, a group who came forward and, and admit that they are part of the problem. Um, as Isaiah 59, 12, and 13 said, Our offenses are many in your sight, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on God. And the, the people saw, they knew this had been part of their pattern of living. And... So they, they said, when we see what, we do, what, we've, what we've done, we wonder, how can God save us? How then can we be saved? It's interesting that modern people, people in our culture, people here in the USA and Ankeny will say, how can God judge people? How could God judge people? How could God pour out wrath on people? How could God send anybody to hell? And this question is based on an underlying belief that we are not so bad. That we are really not sinners. So people in our culture ask, how can God judge people? But Isaiah's question is not, how can God judge people? But how can we possibly be saved? Because of our sins, how can we possibly be saved? How can anyone be saved? And this understanding of the greatness of our sin problem, our need, is, a, is really a prerequisite for God to respond to us. Ray Stedman had a very interesting insight on this passage, I believe. He said, the problem is not so much the presence of human sin 
For God has an answer for that. Set forth in Isaiah chapter 53 in the marvelous story of the one who was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his stripes, we are healed. God has a full answer to the problem of human evil and human sin. But the problem that separates man from God is an unwillingness to admit to that sin. That's what keeps God from acting on your behalf. And then he says this. If you come with a humble, repentant heart, you can get anything from God. But if you come with a self-justifying excuse, God will give you nothing. This, of course, is why many people aren't saved. They, they never really come with a genuine f- admission of their sin and see their sin and their, and their real need of a Savior. But it can also be a problem among Christians. We, we can be so incredibly reluctant to admit, to admit our own wrong attitudes and actions, our own pattern of living in a certain area against God. Uh, we can just refuse to see that we've contributed to the problems we're facing. And there's just a need for this humble attitude of honest admission of fault, of our sins, of our need for, for a Savior. It's easy to get into the mode of thinking, why isn't God coming through for me? I certainly deserve better than this. Why do I always get a raw deal? That's just a totally different attitude than what is expressed here in this chapter. We need to come to God with just an honest confession for some of the choices that we've made. And and you know what? That doesn't bring condemnation upon you. It leads you to God. When you confess the mess that you've made of things, that's the open door for God to come down, for God to come in and save you and show you his mercy. And, of course, the great news, it's, and it's told about even in this chapter, forgiveness is readily available. God is full of mercy and ready to forgive sinners. Isaiah appeals to God's mercy and his compassion as a father. He appeals to this concept that good fathers are full of mercy. You, O Lord, are our father. And he, he, after just chronicling all their failures, all the sins of the people... He says, yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Look upon us, we pray, for we are your people. He prays upon the basis of God's mercy. The father in the very familiar parable of the prodigal son longs for his son to return home. Uh, Day after day, he would look down the road for his son to come back. Finally, after living in drunkenness and wasting all his father's money, he returns home. But what is the response of God? Does he scold him or remind him of how bad he has been? Not at all. He received him immediately. 
He received him joyfully. Because God does not hesitate to receive the sinner who repents, even the worst sinner. And God does not hesitate to receive you when you come to him with your needs and your failures. Just admit them. Come to him. Confess, as it says in 1 John. That's what God is like. And Isaiah knew that God is like that. He knew that God would rend the heavens and come down even to a people who had sinned so greatly. The rest of the book of Isaiah really is just a statement that God will answer the prayer of chapter 64. God will come through for his people who offered this prayer. He will come and make the nations tremble before him. He will save his people. And God will answer this prayer in two major ways, or perhaps we could say in two phases. One, God will rend the heavens and come down 700 years after this chapter was written in the person of Jesus Christ. And we've just talked about that with, with Christmas. I mean, you know, Christmas is not Christmas is not a holy day in a sense. I mean, we don't even, we don't know that Christ was born then. We, and we, in a sense, we really didn't just celebrate a holiday. At least as believers here, and what we tried to create a sense of here at Real Life Church, we celebrated God coming down. We could do that in July. We just happened to do it in December. But we're celebrating God coming down, and part of answer the prayer, uh, the part of the fulfillment of Isaiah's prayers. There was some immediate fulfillment, but part of the fulfillment was God coming down in Jesus Christ. Seven hundred years later, the second part of the or second way that this will be answered, the second phase, is that God will rend the heavens again at the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes to make his full salvation known and seen and evident, and he will make a new heaven and a new earth. I believe Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, really describes the ultimate sense in which this prayer will be answered. O Lord, rend the heavens and come down. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now... The dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. Okay, that's God coming down. When now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, they will be his people, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is the ultimate fulfillment of this prayer. O Lord, rend the heavens and come down, and someday he will dwell right with us in an immediacy and he will live with us as it says so when you cry for god to rend the heavens and come down certainly there is a sense in which he does that in a personal way in a now way in your life and in your heart in your situations there's a now answer a personal answer but your cry for god to rend the heavens and come down will also be answered in history. It will be answered in real events in the future, which, which God will bring about. All right, I'm going to wrap up this morning by f just sharing four very brief applications. I mean, they're so brief that you might miss them. 
Number one, respond to every prompting that you ever have to pray and call upon the Lord. Respond to every desire you feel arise within you to call upon God. When you ever sense that, just go to the Lord and and call upon him. Become a person like Isaiah that you know where to go when you sense needs. Small needs, great needs. You know where to go. You go to God. Number two, and this is in the form of a question, is there an O in your praying? I don't know if it was Martin Lloyd-Jones or somebody said that revival will never come to the church until there is an O in our praying. O Lord. In other words, allow yourself to put passion and desire and express that to the Lord. If you have to get by yourself so nobody can hear you, do that. Third, is your God the God of the Bible? Is your God Yahweh, the Lord who Isaiah called upon? Is he the God who reigns over and directs all of human history? Is he the God who is sufficient for you, for all that your heart wants and needs? And I got to admit, I bring this point up partially because I heard something that really surprised me a uh, week before last. I'd, I dropped Luke off for his uh, colonoscopy. I was listening to uh, a message by R.C. Sproul in 99.3 a uh, week ago Monday. And I heard him talking about, and I don't know if I got the whole story right, but I, I did get the gist of it. He said, I heard, I heard him talking about a, uh, about a room full of people who were asked the question, How many believe in God? How many believe in something, someone bigger than yourself or a higher power? And he said, basically, 100% of the people raised their hands. But then the question was put, how many believe in the God of the Bible? The God who created the world, the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, the God who sent his son into the world and who will someday judge the world. Very few hands went up. You see, a lot of people think they believe in God, but it's, it's not Yahweh. It's not the Lord God Almighty. Uh, many people's God is just a higher power, just a force. It is not the all-sufficient, all-powerful, almighty, all-loving, all-present God of the Bible. So, and, and I think that's, that's a reason why, why people don't, aren't motivated to, to cry out to God like this. Oh, God, that you would come down, rend the heavens and come down. It's a reason that people don't wait of, upon God, a God who acts on behalf of those who wait upon him. Because their concept of God is, is really uh, so truncated or, or, or really false. And so just make sure that, that you're recognizing who God is. And, you know, and I'm not saying you got to do this, and you could really probably turn this into kind of a, a fetish, but, you know, many times when I pray, I just remind God who I am, more so to remind myself, but I, I'm calling upon the God of Abraham. I'm calling upon God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. I'm cr- calling upon the God who created the sea and the dry lands. I'm calling upon the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of David, the God of Hezekiah, the God, you know, on and on and on, just to remind myself 
who I am calling upon. I'm calling upon the God who parted the Red Sea, the God of Moses. I'm calling upon the God of the apostles, the God of Paul. Um, and just making clear for sure who I am calling upon. And then last, uh, go to God and cry out to God like he is the only resource you have for your needs because ultimately he is. Expect your answers to come from God. You know, there's something about putting all your trust in God, about just turning aside from, from everything else, every other person, uh, every other method, and just putting, Lord, I'm putting all of my eggs in this basket. I'm putting all of my hopes in you to do this for me. And there's something about that that draws you into a, a deeper experience of God. And when you see God act on your behalf, then you know you know it was him. And it builds your faith. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the richness of this chapter, which honestly I feel we barely scratched the surface of. But Lord, I pray that that you would um, take your word, your truth, that you so graciously revealed to us in this portion of Isaiah and cause it to live in our hearts, cause it to live right now, Lord, in our hearts. As I've been praying this week, that you would unveil our eyes and open our hearts to receive this and hear this and rejoice in this. I pray that that would would have happened, that that would continue to happen, Lord, that you would continue to make this truth live in our hearts uh, today, this week, really make a lasting impact on our lives. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.